Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I am Marilyn Ritchie and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Moore. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Jason and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussion. I am Marilyn Ritchie, and it is great to be back to host episode nine, our 10th episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We are coming to you live on tape from the metaverse due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sitting next to me virtually is co-host Jason Moore, and behind the scenes is our talented sound engineer, Michael Stauffer. Today, we have Dr. Kevin Johnson from Vanderbilt University as our special guest host. Jason, what have you been up to since our last recording? Well, I had a vacation, which was wonderful. It was a staycation because of the pandemic. So I uh, didn't leave the house except for walks around my neighborhood, but uh, pretty much did no work. I think I did about an hour of email every morning when I got up and the rest of the day I relaxed. I read books. I played games. I watched movies with my kids um, and it was fantastic. So um, very, very, very much needed staycation and I had been working on grants for just months and months and months straight and so it was nice to have a little bit of a break and which has continued um, the last you know I would say the first part of July. Um, I also attended my first virtual conferences as a lot of people are doing um, in this new era. Um, I attended the Genetic and Evolutionary Computing Conference, which is a computer science, machine learning, artificial intelligence conference, one of my favorites that's held in July every year. And uh, we had a, a good showing and won a Best Paper Award. My research associate, Bill LaCava, won a Best Paper Award for his paper on fairness uh, for machine learning classifiers, which is a hot new area. And this is our first paper in that area. So thanks to Bill for all his hard work on that. And uh, we have been nominated four years in a row for this best paper award. Uh, Bill, in fact, has been nominated four years in a row and finally won uh, with his fairness paper. So happy to uh, happy for him to break, break the streak. Um, um, also, I gave a, a keynote lecture on 20 challenges for working with electronic health record data at the Transmed workshop at ISMB, the Intelligent Systems and Molecular Biology meeting. So that was kind of my first big keynote address virtually, and it went really well. There were over 100 people that attended, and um, it was, uh, I, I thought, a, a great event. So I would say my first two virtual conference experiences were uh, a resounding success. So, um, and I'm sure hopefully other people have had the same experience with their summer conferences. Um, for fun, I took a day off uh, recently and attended Kansas Fest, uh, which I've wanted to do for a long time. Um, this is a 
uh, retro computer festival in that's held in Kansas City every year. And unfortunately, I've never been able to attend because I'm always traveling for Gecko and other conferences. Um, but this year, because it was virtual, I was able to attend. attend and uh, Kansas Fest focuses on Apple retro computers. So the Apple II uh, line of computers is very heavily featured there, um, which I had a little bit of experience with back in the late 70s, early 80s. So it was fun um, and, and fun to see all the geeks talk about their retro computing hardware and projects. Um, I'm getting geared up uh, right now, getting back into grant writing mode. I'm going to submit an NIH Center grant uh, this fall. Um, so my next two months, two or three months is going to be uh, grant, grant hell. Um, so getting geared up for that mentally and physically and um, starting to get my head into daily grant writing. Um, and interestingly, I'm on a new committee at Penn to explore more permanent op options for working from home. I'd love to hear from Kevin later about this if, if there's a moment about what Vanderbilt's doing, but Penn Medicine is starting to think about um, what, what it would look like for people to permanently work from home and, and what are the, what are the advantages and disadvantages of that? But at least preliminary, it looks like a win-win for people that want to work from home and it's less space that, uh, Penn has to provide. Um, also our graduate training program, because a lot of the content for new graduate students this fall is going to be virtual, asked us to create a short video of our research. So I did that. I created a 12 minute video introduction uh, focusing on my machine learning work, um, posted that to YouTube uh, for the incoming students to watch. So that was that was kind of fun. And I'm really excited to have Kevin Johnson here today. I just want to say, Kevin, you're one of my heroes. You're a, um, uh, you know, we all look up to you as one of the leaders in the biomedical informatics space. And and how you pulled off being CIO and chair of one of the best departments in the country is beyond me. I'd love to have a beer with you sometime and hear how you did that. But uh, from my eyes, it looks like a, su uh, a superhuman effort. But anyway, thanks, Kevin, for joining us today. Uh, Marilyn, what have you been up to? Well, like you, I also took a vacation over the last month. It was also a staycation. Um, I did not check email every day. I actually only looked if someone texted me and said, Marilyn, it's urgent. Go look for this one from this person. And then I did look at those. Um, I did have a, you know, a just in time request for a grant that was really important and somebody else's grant going in and none of my references synced in the online Zotero. So it was kind of a, a last minute urgent. So I did that. But otherwise, I took an actual vacation. I read two novels. I took naps. It was amazing. Highly recommend it. And in fact, I'm taking another vacation um, in August. It was so good, but I was like, I needed a few more days. So uh, we are going to attempt, hopefully, to go out of town for a couple of days, but we will see where the pandemic is by mid-August and, and then make the decision on whether we're leaving the house or taking another staycation. Uh, the other things, I did a train the trainer workshop um, it was put on by the NIH office called OITE. It was incredible. It was um, four days of virtual conference. Um, Jason, I put a link in the show notes that, that we can add for others because all of their materials are publicly available. You didn't have to register in order to get access to these materials. And they do lots of workshops and trainings 
all the time. It used to be restricted for NIH, but the pandemic has made it such that they've had to shift from in-person to virtual. And when they did that, that just made it open to the public. These are trainings about wellness, self-care, um, signs of depression and anxiety in your trainees, signs and warning, uh, warnings about um, suicide and suicide prevention, things about racism and social injustice and how to talk about that in your academic community. It was incredible. Highly recommend it. They recorded the whole thing and it's all available online through this website. And so it was just phenomenal. I think it's meant for faculty and program directors and department chairs and deans, but I think it, a lot of the content would be valuable for really anybody in academia, especially a lot of the wellness um, materials that they put together. It was really great. Um, I've been doing a lot of revising of manuscripts and a book that I'm editing. Um, a few, maybe two or three episodes ago on the podcast, I said we were submitting three papers to high impact journals. The great news is they all got asked for revisions. And the bad news is they all got asked for a lot of revisions. <laughs> so we are now revising three manuscripts for high impact journals. It's very exciting for my trainees. They're really excited, but it we're spending a lot of time this summer now revising manuscripts, which is great. Um, I'm also uh, doing some mentoring for the American Physician Scientists Association. They have a summer research program for future physician scientists from underrepresented groups. And typically it's in person, but because of COVID it's virtual. Since my lab is informatics and so many labs that would typically do this couldn't, they really put out a call to get more informatics labs involved. Even though these students don't all have a lot of informatics training and it's not their focus, they want to have those research opportunities. And so um, I'm, I was thrilled five of my lab members stepped up and offered to be a mentor. And so we have five summer students, several of which would like to stay for the fall because they're doing virtual undergrad anyway. And so there's no reason that they couldn't stay at Penn for the fall and do research. And they are coming from all over um, North and South America. I have um, student, a student from Puerto Rico and um, students from the West Coast, the East Coast. So I'm really excited to give these students an opportunity to, to see what life is like in informatics. And I'm hoping to inspire some of them to maybe go that route in their physician scientist training. Um, I'm giving a talk uh, very soon in the uh, Artificial Intelligence for All Camp that is put on by UCSF. This is for high school students and it's specifically targeted at girls, trying to get girls excited about AI and medicine. So I'm giving the closing keynote talk for that meeting. I'm really excited about it. And uh, lastly, as you mentioned, the work from home. So once I knew that there was a permanent committee, I was like, all right, it is time to seriously investigate the work from home strategies that are going to work for my lab. You know, this is something that, to be honest, I'm really enjoying it with the exception of the social interactions. And so trying to figure out how to kind of influx those conversations and brainstorming sessions. And so I'm, I'm doing more research on how to effectively work from home. You know, I, I uh, subscribe to the journal The Economist now to start reading some of those articles so I can learn some strategies from the business folks that have been thinking about this for a lot longer than I have. So that's about it. It's been busy summer, that's for sure. Um, so Kevin, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself 
and tell us a little bit about what you've been up to. And, and don't forget to mention your own podcast. We want everybody to know about it. Okay, well, thank you. So I'm Kevin Johnson. Um, as, as Jason said, at one time, I was the chief informatics officer at Vanderbilt. I've been for the last almost 10 years now, our, the chair of our department of biomedical informatics and have had a chance to work with both of you. And it's been a real pleasure since the first times that we had a chance to meet. Um, I'm a pediatrician as well. And, uh, you know, doing, frankly, the exact same things you're doing. I mean, I think our, we're literally in parallel universes in the North and the South, the Mason-Dixon line is the only thing that's different. Um, I'm being completely <laughs> fake when I say that. So, um, but but I would say like, you know, like you, just to kind of get into a little bit of what I've been doing, it's been an incredibly productive time. And I think like a lot of us around the country are experiencing, it's been an incredibly exhausting time. So we're, we're all trying to figure out how to teach in the fall virtually. And what does that mean? And how to be creative in that space. As a chair, I think a lot about our culture. So I've spent a fair amount of time this summer in this, in this working from home environment, trying to figure out, do we use Slack? Do we use Teams? Do I play around with Minecraft? I mean, what do we do to try to create an environment that best you know, accomplishes what I want, to, I want to accomplish as a department chair culturally? So of course we're writing grants, I'm writing papers. Uh, it's probably been the most number of papers I've written in a six month period um, that I've ever done in my entire career because I had this backlog of ideas and, and, and things I wanted to talk about. And, and I now had the voice and the time to sort of put all that together. Probably like you guys, I'm also running meetings nationally. So one of the things I've had to do is a lot of pre-meeting work because for our meeting to go off well, there's always prep. But when the meeting has never been online or when you have various personalities with various levels of technical proficiency, you know, the time that it takes to rehearse each meeting and the time it takes to figure out the timing. In many cases, these are eight hour meetings. And so the time it took for me to convince leadership above me to break them into smaller bite-sized chunks, which meant rescheduling, has taken on a, a life of its own. Um, one of my, one of my um, annual activities is that I am on the National Advisory Committee for the um, Amos Medical Faculty Development Program from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And we literally have 100 applicants for 12 spots. We go through two phases of application review. Typically that process of, of coming up with our finalists is in New York in June. Then we interview roughly 24 to 25 people. And this is a group of, of, of 20 really outstanding scientists of, of the highest caliber from around the country. And these are incredibly challenging interviews for these, for these candidates. We moved that entire program online this year. So it was kind of triply exhausting because of the technology, all of us who worry about the candidates, um, and of course, having multiple phases. I also run the Board of Scientific Counselors for the uh, NIH, had to make that meeting go online. I'm on Council of Councils, and I'm running the Sequence Read Archive work group for the NIH. We've had to put that meeting online. And it's just amazing to me. I'm sure you guys appreciate how many of these people who live in technology still are like, you know, tapping the screen saying, you know, is this mic on? Is this mic on? And we spend a big chunk of the meeting trying to figure all that stuff out. Um, also, I think one of the things, Marilyn, that you've taught me with Calm is work-life balance and reminding me to stand, take the time to walk my dog, 
get on the treadmill, get in the pool. And I've been trying to do all those things. I'm going to buy some new tennis rackets today, as it turns out. I had some demos and um, I've been out biking pretty religiously. Um, I also just took a vacation. I went to Provincetown and we did decide to fly after a lot of investigation and looking at data. We went from Tennessee to New York. You might remember that Tennessee is actually a quarantined state. So we were told by New York that as long as we get in our rental car and get out of Dodge, we're fine. <laughs> so we got in a rental car and we drove straight to Cape Cod and we spent uh, 10 days there, which was just fantastic. And then there's recruits and there's dealing with George Floyd and there's all of those things that are going on. And then as you noted in between that, I'm doing a few podcasts. I have this podcast called Informatics in the Round. So people who wanna search on ours, if they just put in round, they can kind of find them both. And it makes it easy. Informatics and round, you've got all the podcasts. Uh, we're in our similar, I think we're also on our ninth episode. Uh, I just released one yesterday and we have two more in the can. I'm always about two ahead. And we're going to be recording a, a couple of really interesting ones. The one after the one that just got released is on data privacy. So it has Brad Malin, Ellen Clayton going through some issues with data privacy. We have one coming up called The Journey where we're actually going to interview a number of people. And this was kind of inspired by Black Lives Matters, which is many people who are in the informatics field had an agenda that got them into the informatics field, and they have to often abandon that agenda to stay funded. So we're going to talk a little bit about where people started um, and, and how they're trying to hold on to what, what their roots were in this field to, to keep that work going. So keeping busy with a lot of fun things. Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you are listening to us for the first time, you can find us on the web at bmipodcast.org. You can leave us feedback by email, feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave us feedback on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at bmirpodcast, and we have a Facebook page. Be sure and leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, the reviews help us improve the podcast, but also help improve our visibility. Welcome. I'm Nancy Lorenzi, Professor of Biomedical Informatics at Vanderbilt University. Today you are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is leadership coaching. Our guest host, Kevin Johnson, will introduce the topic. Well, thanks a lot, Marilyn and Jason. Thank you so much. And by the way, Michael, thank you for fantastic sound engineering. I can see it happening through the screen. Um, so for I, I'm really excited about us having this topic on here because, and. Um, one of the things I believe most people don't realize when they take on leadership jobs is that you haven't been taught for it and that there actually is teaching that can happen. I mean, I think many people assume I'm here, I deserve to be here, I'll figure it out. And my boss, Jeff Balzer, was, was wise enough to realize almost a couple of decades ago that leaders really need to be taught how to manage. Leadership and management are two fundamentally different things. 
And you know, the reality is we're all in academic health centers that are incredibly difficult environments in which to work right now. Um, at the enterprise level, they're all about cost effectiveness, which is coming out with the most efficient ways to exercise healthcare and education and research, you know, make the most money, spend the least money, use that margin back into the research mission. And when you're a leader, one of the things you realize as a department chair or an institute or center director is your job is an externally facing job. So when you go into those jobs, you expect that what you're gonna do is turn around and give your group a charge and see it through. And what you find out is that you have to have a seat at a table. You have to, you know, to, to coin Hamilton, be in the room where it happens. And therefore you need to have a skill set that allows you to do both pretty quickly, pretty adept and pretty nimbly. And I had been experiencing that when I was working with the other chairs. And so when I was given the opportunity to become a chair, and by the way, I was an internal recruit, which added a little bit more complexity to it. I actually asked to have coaching. And one of the things that my, my coach told me about when we, when we first met was just reminding me that it's not a sign of weakness to have a coach. And that some of the top executives in the country, and I won't mention names here, but many of the top executives have executive coaches themselves for precisely the reasons that I thought I would need one. Um, you know, fundamentally, you need to learn the management skills and you need to learn them just in time. You know, somebody giving me uh, Minsky's book on leadership is not going to help me to remember exactly what to do in a particular contextual situation. It provides this experienced, trusted, and objective voice from someone outside of your own sphere of influence. It's a way to really intellectualize day-to-day -day management. So for me, the fact that I can kind of think about how today went, kind of get into a sort of metacognitive space and use that to improve tomorrow was something my coach helped me to think about very early on in my, in my tenure as a chair. Um, I found it to be extremely valuable as a way to increase my emotional capacity because, you know, these, these quote unquote white collar jobs are incredibly tiring. And the main reason is because of how much worry there is. You know, there's just, there's so many things that aren't finished every day. You know, when I was, when you're playing doctor and you've seen a patient, you worry for a little while, but you get pretty good at realizing you're going to see him again. And if you're a good doctor, they're going to call you back and you can put it away. But when you're doing these kinds of jobs, they're emotionally wrenching. And one of the things you have to learn is how to take this in stride, if you will, not in a way that is in some way off-putting or not intimate, but in a way that allows you to keep it in perspective. And then the last thing I learned a lot from coaching is, is what we often call resilience strategy. And it gets again to Marilyn, some of the things you've preached so much, and Jason, I know you practice, which is recognizing a way that on a tough day, you can come up with a way to come back tomorrow or get through that day. Um, and there's a lot of different techniques. So it's not something you have to suffer in silence. You can actually learn how to do that through coaching. I think the key thing for me was coaching provided perspective. It was a person that I could take my, my worst days to, and, and his name is Al Parcham, by the way, and have that fully unpacked. And to look at, you know, well, you knew this was going to be hard because this is something we're working on. And you nailed this part, and that's why this certain thing happened. And just having somebody to sort of go through that with, um, especially early on in the journey toward, you know, management, 
uh, executive level management was super important. Um, coaching uh, has been written about a lot in literature that none of us in informatics ever read. And one of the things I hope to do to change that, and I hope others do as well, is to begin getting that literature in our journals. Um, I know, Marilyn, you've talked a lot about the ways in which you've used articles that are in science and others to really round out the knowledge that you have as, as a leader at Penn. And I think similarly, coaching needs the same kind of visibility. Uh, we've written an article in the American Psychological Association in 2019, which really summarizes the Vanderbilt experience with coaching. Uh, there are two articles. The first has as its first author, Jeffrey Balzer, who is our president and CEO. And the second is actually an article that's really fascinating, written by Kimrin Rathmel, as well as by Kimrin's boss, Nancy Brown, who is now the dean at Yale, and also by their coach. So it kind of provides in one article sort of a 360 degree view of what coaching does, which I think is very instructive. Um, some of the things that they talk about in that article that as I read it, my head just you know went up and down the entire time were how much time in the first year we learn how to deal with conflict management because I almost guarantee you every single person you and I know who goes into leadership has become a master of conflict avoidance, right? We, the, the, as I used to say, as a Trekkie, it's it's the it's the Kobayashi Maru test, right? It's the idea that I can actually get through this entire test by never having to deal with the problem I'm supposed to deal with, and I was good at that, but it doesn't really work because you could literally have the same problem on your plate for years if you don't address it, and it can it can snowball. Another is the issues of delegation and time management. I spent probably easily even now, probably one coaching session a year. And for a while, it was probably every coaching session dealing with time management issues. I mean, you heard a little bit of a, a window into how I've spent the last couple of months. And the, the trick to me has been to learn a lot more about time management than I ever thought I would need to know, and certainly that I ever used as a researcher and doctor before this. Third is managing difficult decisions. Uh, coaching is all about in the in the moment, and your coach should be able to give you a phone number, and you should be able to call that phone number or text that person or mail that person and actually get a conversation going about a decision you're about to make. And in my case, um, and this is related to difficult decisions, I kind of viewed coaching and still do as helping me to fill out a utility belt if you're a Batman guy, right? So I had, this, I had this belt that was largely empty. I had a couple of skills in it from dealing with my daughter, dealing with my parents, you know, occasionally dealing with a, a funder, um, dealing with a couple of patients that were ex extremely difficult. But I needed a, a, a lot of different tools in the utility belt. The first thing that my coach and I worked on was language. And, and what I mean by that is I've never had a problem sort of performing, right? I've never had a problem getting into a room and saying what I think is the right thing to say, but starting in that direction was, was incredibly important for me. In other words, if I knew this was gonna be a difficult conversation, I needed a phrase that I could literally parrot back to get my brain thinking in the right way. And the, the anecdote I'll tell you about that, one of the people who had been one of my good friends at my, uh, in my current job, needed to um, needed to leave. And 
as a part of that whole process, I called my coach and I said, I don't know how to do this. I mean, we, we talk all the time and he's not happy or she's not happy, but at the same time, I need to be, you know, I need to not avoid this conflict and I need to really address the point. And he said, you know, it's, it's just a challenge, Kevin. He goes, what you're going to have to do is, is, is just go in there and, and, and tell him you're in a real pickle. And I said, I'm in a pickle. That'll work. Because that, that's exactly what I'm in. It's, it's literally the best thing I could possibly say. It's informal. It's off. It's not, um, it's not intense. But it allows me to get into a conversation. I now have about a dozen other phrases, depending on the person, because of course leadership is all about agility. But by walking in the room and saying, you know, I'm really in a pickle, it allowed me to say, I've got to do a difficult thing to somebody that I really, really like. And, and that changed the entire tenor of the meeting to this must be difficult for both of us. And I'm not happy, but I understand it. And off we go. So I think there's a lot of that. The other thing I learned pretty quickly was going Zen. And this is actually something Jeff Balzer taught me and my coach and I worked on. And this gets back to that metacognitive space, which is you're in a meeting, and I'm, I'm sure this has happened to both of you, Marilyn and Jason, you're in a meeting and it starts to get really intense and you fundamentally disagree with somebody and you know you're right and you can feel your blood pressure boiling and your speech starts to get just a little bit louder and you start leaning forward, you know, your eyes don't blink anymore. Maybe you, maybe you start rubbing all the parts of your body that, that tell people that you're super ticked off. And then all of a sudden you realize this isn't helping, right? I'm, I'm going to get so into this that I'm going to be viewed more as the person who went ballistic than the person who has a good point. And what I was taught to do was stop and imagine that you are floating above the room and actually look at all the people and where they're sitting and how they're acting. And remember that every one of them has the exact same level of intensity you know, opportunity as you, and you have to modulate that and make your points in a way that gets through what you're portraying and so, or what you're conveying. And so that idea of going Zen is something that I've now done. Whenever I feel that going in the meeting, going in that direction, I just immediately float above it and kind of say, okay, what I'm trying to actually get these people to hear is this. And by being able to sort of lower my voice and slow down my speech, I don't get exhausted, right? If I lose, I lose, I feel better. Um, and that was a lesson that my, my coach and I worked on. Uh, the last thing I wanna say, and then I'd, I'd love to kind of hear what you guys think about all of this and what you've done, is I thought it was really important to get a 360 degree evaluation one year into my leadership role. Because I think one of the number one things that kills a good leader or manager is blind spots. And these 360-degree evaluations at least give people an opportunity to tell you the good things about you that you've always known about, and maybe as an, in as delicate a way as possible, at least some one person is going to identify the thing that you didn't know that somebody might have thought about something you did or thought or, or portrayed. And so I have a sheet in my uh, desk drawer at work that someday I'll go back to. And it's my 360 degree evaluation summary. And I would go through that at the end of every year and say, how do I feel like I'm doing? Do I feel like I've addressed all these issues? Because you, you slide back. So that's, that's why I really believe in it. I think all of us should be thinking about it. 
coaching comes in lots of different forms. Could be It could be that one of your mentors you asked to be a coach. That's a de- delicate situation, so it has to be thought about carefully. But um, that's what I've been doing. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for that, Kevin. I I uh, I agree. This is a super super important topic, and I th- I think it's um, you know I think you're you're lucky to have have had this kind of coaching and to have a good coach. I think uh, so few leaders have access um, or the in- inclination to seek out uh, this kind of coaching. It's something we certainly need more of. Um, and I love the uh, I love the example in the Balzer article. I, I definitely recommend everybody to read that, and we'll have a, a link to it in the show notes, um, so you can go read it for yourself. But um, I love the example he gives, where he had these two competing factions that were at each other's throats that were were in disagreement about some major issues, and he invited them to meet. He got them in the same room, and and it was a tense meeting, and the, you know, the, everybody's blood pressure was up and, and, and after the meeting, he went to see the coach and, uh, uh, you know, felt like the meeting was a failure. And the coach said, no, congratulations. That's, that was a success. You know, you, you got these people to, to air their grievances and to do it with you in the room. Right. And they felt comfortable with Balzer as a leader in the room having these heated arguments. And, you know, that's, that's an indication that he's, you know, he was doing a good job. And so anyway, you can, you can go read that example for yourself, but I thought, I thought it was really good. So, um, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Kevin, is I've, um, I've had leadership training a few times in my career. And one of the things that I've noticed is the inconsistency in leadership training. And there's, quite a bit of diversity out there. So, you know, the, the, the image of coaching that you just portrayed um, sounds pretty good to me. And I, I wonder whether it's you are one of a few that has access to a really good coach. Um, you know, so, so what is your impression? I mean, is, is good coaching pervasive? Is it spotty? Can you get bad advice from a coach? Um, are there good coaches and bad coaches? Um, that's kind of my sense from my own experience. I've seen good good coaches and, and coaches that I fundamentally disagree with, and I think pr- probably gave bad advice. Um, I don't know what what what's your take on that. Well, you're you're actually bringing up two really key points. You know, we're we're all data people, and we've all heard the phrase "all models are wrong, some are useful," right? So the way I look at this is, if you look at my bookshelf, you're going to find probably about a dozen books that roughly are in the same space of leadership and management and time management and mindfulness, right? That whole leading self, leading others, managing up, in, and uh, out. And you're going to ask me which one I like, and I'm going to say I like chapter blank from this one, and I like chapter blank from that one, because it feels right for my personality. And so I think the idea is you have to develop your own your own kind of leadership strategy, your leadership mindset, as many people call it, or your leadership style. And it's unlikely to be directly based on any of these books because they're fundamentally not a way you can you can practice. So I think number one, all of these books are wrong and all of these books are right. And it's up to us to figure out which parts really work for us and which, which data speak to how we are. Um, when it comes to coaches, I think it's the exact same thing. And in my case, I was interviewed by one coach who then referred me to another coach. 
because it was pretty clear that what he typically provided, and I think he can tell uh, that I was listening to him kind of drone on and on and not being able to pay attention. I don't do as well with a coach who's going to sort of give me a 20 minute or 30 minute download. I much prefer that there be concrete examples that are immediately resonating to me, even if it's the exact same material. So I think you really do have to spend a bit of time understanding yourself and not being afraid to go back to the well and say, I know I need a coach. I don't think this is the right person. Yeah. You know, uh, Marilyn and I did a, a leadership segment where we talked about leadership skills and what, what we thought were some, some good, good leadership skills. And, and I think in that episode, one of the things I talked about, which has been really effective for me is, is studying leaders um, as you encounter them. And that's something I've sort of naturally done my entire career uh, going back to you know being a, a young assistant professor is is when I'm in a meeting with a, a leader, watching how they deal with situations, how do they deal with people, how how do they make decisions, and we all come across good leaders and bad leaders. And one of the things I've done is made throughout my career made mental notes. Okay, this is I like how this leader handled this situation. I'm going to try to emulate that. And I really didn't like how this leader handled this situation. I am not going to do those kinds of things. And and that's been, um, you know, in addition to the some of the kind of coaching you're talking about, that's been very effective for me is just being a study of leadership and really paying attention to how how leaders um, uh, present themselves and 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 how they lead and and kind of keep keeping keeping notes and and over time that's been a very effective strategy for me. So there's a book called it's a New York Times bestseller called Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon. It's picture for you guys. And um, it's a really terrific book that says exactly what you just said, which is you need to find a number of people in your life. And this is actually a book about innovation um, and art. And the whole idea is good artists steal from other people. They don't turn their work into that person's work because they can't, right? I mean, we all know from a precision medicine perspective, each of us is different. So you embrace those differences. But to, to say, I like this person's style of dealing with conflict. I like this person's way of delivering good news. Nancy Brown gives everybody a bottle of wine when they get a grant. I was going to give everybody a bottle of wine, but I don't know enough about wine. So I just felt like they were going to go home and go, he gave me swill. What does that mean? <laughs> right? <laughs> so I decided I get the idea. So for me, it's cookies or something else. You know, I, I mean, you, just, you have to do it a different way. Kevin, that was great. I I wrote down so many notes as you were talking. I was so inspired by a lot of the, the things you said. I thought I, there are a couple of things I'll say again um, and add a little bit to them. You mentioned early on how leadership and management are two different skills. And I 100% agree with you. And unfortunately, exactly zero of those two skills are actually taught to graduate students or medical students. And so those of us that rise in the ranks in academic medical centers have not been trained. Maybe a small sliver, and I actually don't know the data, but how many PhDs or MDs also have an MBA that have also gotten that business management and maybe some of that leadership training, but certainly very few, I think, pursue that, at least right out of kind of their training as they're starting to have their you know, their research group or the group that they're managing, maybe after they realize that they have a, um, a liking to administration, then they take that on. But I know when I started my research group, 
there were suddenly all these things I had to do that I was like, oh my gosh, I have no idea how to do any of this. There, there was no class on this. How, okay. So it was a lot of reading and, and self-teaching and Jason, like you said, watching other people. Um, another thing that you said that I love, and I've heard this a lot lately, is that it's not a, not a sign of weakness to have a coach. And uh, an analogy that I wanted to just repeat for people, because I do think a lot of people tend to think that you know, if you're reading personal development, professional development, leadership books, coaching books, that it's a sign that you have a problem and you're trying to fix your problem. But professional athletes have a coach and a trainer. They continue to train and grow. You know, most uh, artists, so people who sing on Broadway, they have a vocal coach. They continue to train and practice. It's not as though you get to a level and now you don't need any coaching or teaching anymore. I think this whole idea that, you know, if, if you're going to be talented in your area, you need to continue to learn and grow throughout your career, I think is really important. And um, I mentioned it on my podcast, but I'll say it here too. There's a great book called Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck that talks about this, that, you know, to be really strong in your discipline, it's maintaining that idea that you need to keep learning and growing. So I, I love the idea of coaching. I think it's so needed for, for leaders and, and really everyone. Um, I actually did a, a program. It sounds very similar to what you did. Um, when I spent a short time at Geisinger, I was enrolled in an executive leadership coaching program. And um, it was interesting. I learned, so we did a 360 uh, evaluation, which I totally agree. I think everybody should do that to learn your blind spots. And two of mine actually led to kind of where I am now. One was around wellness. So about half of the people who filled in the 360, and it was like maybe 25 people, were worried that I wasn't taking care of myself. They didn't see me eating lunch. They didn't see me taking vacation. They never saw me taking time off. And it was kind of, it was eye-opening, like, oh my gosh, you're right, I don't really eat lunch. Hmm, maybe that's an issue. And so it's definitely led to me being much more focused on balance and wellness. And then the other is that several people thought that um, that my, my mood was not authentic because it wasn't possible that life was that good all the time. And so they questioned <laughs> my optimism. Like, is she just being fake? Cause she's always happy. And it was a good reminder. So no, I'm not faking, I, I'm an optimist, but I tended to never be vulnerable and show people when I was hurting or sad or feeling rejected or had a failure, I just kind of kept those quiet because I didn't want to show that weak side or what I thought was weakness. But it taught me the vulnerability, even around the people you're leading is important because if they think that you're up on a pedestal and you never fail and everything is sunshine and you know raining chocolate puppies all the time, then you're almost, you're untouchable and you don't seem like they can connect with you. And so that was a really good reminder to, to be vulnerable and let them know when I feel like crap and like, I can't believe this grant was not discussed again. And, and so I've actually tweeted about that some too, to not just within my group, but kind of everywhere kind of share that. And I have to just comment that obviously as a woman physician scientist, so, so much of that has to do, I mean, Taylor Swift's song, if, if I were the man or I'd be the man, it really it addresses this, right? And I think what you're dealing with is that it's, what is, what is it we all expect of you 
versus what should we expect of you? And I'm really pleased that you made the decision to say, no, I'm gonna to continue to be an optimist, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna expose some of my weaknesses because I think I deserve to be able to do that. Yeah, well, thank you. It, it was hard, it was really hard at first, but um, I'd love to do another 360 again to see how kind of my, the, you know, my peers and my direct reports perceive me now and if it's different. So one of these days I'll do that. Um, and the last thing I had to say, uh, I wanted to ask you a question and it kind of goes back to my first point with about the leadership and management training that we don't get. I'm wondering, do you think that there's anything more that we should be doing for our graduate students and our medical students? Obviously they can't do the level of executive leadership coaching at that level. It, like they would never retain the information, but can do you think it's necessary to start putting some things in front of them earlier so that it's not like a, you know, a deer in headlights or an oncoming train, which is certainly what it felt like to me when I got to that point that it was like, okay, you are now in charge of the people go. So uh, outstanding question. And I think there are a few things, you know, I, the first thing is I really think it's important for people to distinguish what leadership is from what management is. When I was being interviewed, somebody asked me, to defend my ability to be a leader. And I actually stopped them. Um, I couldn't believe I did this, but I actually stopped them and I said, I don't think I have to defend my, my ability to be a leader. I think I have to defend my ability to be a manager, you know, because as a, le a leader is a senator, a manager is a mayor, right? Mayors spend a lot of their day and or governors looking at data, figuring out things, making decisions, dealing with complaints, they don't have to be a figurehead with, with the role necessarily that a senator plays, which is to vote on things and let other people do a ton of the management part. And so I actually think, and, and I'm not alone in this, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and AMIA all believe that leadership training should begin as soon as people identify themselves as potential leaders. So in programs like ours, a graduate student has identified themselves as being a potential leader because they... The, the, the bar that we make them get over to get into these programs is very high. And to me, if you look at things like the current rate of suicide among especially younger scientists and younger physicians, one of, the, one of the aspects of that is leading self, right? And so if we begin from the very beginning by saying, what does it mean to lead self? How does it, what does it mean to practice mindfulness? What does it mean to, to manage you know, energy? What does it mean to have a, to deal with family dynamics in the moment, right? How do you deal with the fact that you may have children on your Zoom call and your boss doesn't have any kids? Those are those are real conversations I think we need to have early so that we can let them, first of all, know it is normal to have these problems, but also, again, that you can teach your way out of them. There are ways you can actually learn things to do better. I think you start that from the very beginning you develop a curriculum that goes through kind of ages and stages so that as they get further and further along, you're able to build on that and have scaffolding. And we've started that a little bit at AMIA. I would admit that we have not done as much of that as I think we should, getting back to the point that you were making, which is maybe we should be talking to our premier journal about having a leadership and management section where there's at least some piece in there every blank, every quarter, every, every month. Yeah, that's a great, great suggestion. I like that idea. Well, I may talk to you more about that offline because that's something that one of the other things I learned about myself, which 
was a little bit, I don't know, funny or just odd through that executive training that I did at Geisinger. It's actually why I, I'm now at Penn at a university is that I learned my purpose is mentoring and teaching. And so my coach said, why do you work in a health system where you're not mentoring and teaching? <laughs> and I was like, that's a wonderful question. I think I need to get back to academia. I just didn't, I never actually did exercises to figure out my life purpose. And through that coaching, it's one of the things we did. And so um, I'm really passionate. I So I, I do a lot of mentoring, obviously, in my own lab, but I want to mentor more. And so maybe getting involved with Amia and some of that ages and stages type things, I, I would really like that. And I have to say, Jason, I know, um, you know, your past life at Dartmouth, I think, also had a similar kind of evolutionary approach to it that helped you to realize what Penn was going to offer. Absolutely. So um, I'm glad both of you had a good 360 experience. I've never done it, so I can't I can't speak to, um, you know, the impact. But I can say I've filled out a couple of those and I hate filling those things out. I hate answering those questions. I, so I wanted to ask both of you, have you actually been on the other end and actually answered those questions for other people? And how do you find that process? Um, because when I'm filling that out, I, I, I look at the questions and I think, oh my God, how are they ever going to extract anything meaningful out of this? Um, and it's kind of a chore, to be honest, to fill them out. And I wasn't too happy about doing it. Well, I'll tell you, I've done four or five of them. I dictate as much as I possibly can. So I will get the voice recorder on my phone and actually answer the comment box first. And then based on what comes out of my mouth, I then figure out what score am I basically saying? Because I know that I've said the truth. And now the question is, does that, can I represent the truth in five you know, radio boxes or buttons? Um, and you're right. I mean, if you do it in reverse, I, it's, I find it unbelievably painful because I know I have things I want to say, but I sure don't want to spend all my time going, are you a two or a three? Um, so that's why I do it that way. I, I frankly, I hope I get my scores right because I, I hope that these people who read these are care, taking careful attention, paying careful attention to the words we type in the comment box more than the score we give in each category. Yeah. And Jason, I would agree. I also don't like filling them out. I did it several times, um, in the past and they're very hard to fill out. However, well, and I will say, I don't remember anything about the scores. I don't remember any of my numbers. I know what areas are my strengths and weaknesses from other assessments that I did. And I think the numbers on my 360 aligned with what I knew about myself in terms of strength and weakness. And so I kind of forgot the numbers and I just know what areas to work on. It's the comments, as Kevin said, that um, really... I mean, I read them many times. Some of them hurt, hurt to read because it was, I mean, this, when I had like 12 people say, I'm really worried about her. She doesn't eat. It was the, the taking care of myself and the, you know, being exhausted at the end of the day. Well, it's because I've had no fuel all day long other than coffee and that's not fuel. So, um, so while they're painful to fill out, I think, especially the comments, um, as long as the person takes it seriously, they're really impactful. Yeah, I would strongly recommend, Jason, that you that you make your bosses get you a 360. <laughs> Agreed. All right. I know those people. I'll give them a call. <laughs> 
All right. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful discussion topic. Um, I learned a lot today from you and um, this, I know I'm sure our listeners did as well. And we'll have a, we'll have links in the show notes to uh, the papers that Kevin mentioned and the books um, that both Kevin and Marilyn mentioned. Um, but I agree. Uh, it's uh, leadership and management's a lifelong process. Uh, it's kind of like playing golf, right? You never, you never get perfect at it, but it's uh, something to always, always be improving. So Kevin, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I, sh I didn't mention it before, but if people would like to talk to me about this or uh, take a listen to the podcast. Uh, I, I talk a lot about the podcast on Facebook. If you look at my Facebook information, I'll put that in your show notes as well. And my Twitter handle is at KBJ Kevin Brian Johnson Vanderbilt. It is now time for some news items. The following are a few things that caught our eye. Jason will get us started with the first item. Thanks, Marilyn. There was an interesting viewpoint paper in JAMA that was published last week by John McGreevy, Bill Hansen, and Ross Capel uh, from here at Penn on the clinical, legal, and ethical aspects of chatbots and conversational agents in healthcare. This is a, a great paper and discusses topics such as patient safety, trust and transparency, you know, what content decisions do you make, uh, data use, data privacy, bias, health equity, third-party involvement, cybersecurity, legal issues, and governance. So they cover a whole wide range of important topics that you can imagine would be relevant to things like chatbots. Um, and since chatbots are now being routinely used in healthcare setting, or at least um, evaluated in a healthcare setting, I think this is a a very timely paper, and if you're interested in chatbots, I definitely recommend checking it out. All right. Uh, the next one is, as reported by Forbes, Google has announced that its employees will not return to the office until the summer of 2021. It is looking more and more likely that that'll be the case for us at Penn Medicine as well, and in talking with colleagues around the country, I think that's the case for a lot of uh, academic institutions. So we'll have a link to this Forbes article and uh, the report on Google also working from home until next summer. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we have to work from home through next summer um, just because of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and I'm sure, you know, even if a vaccine comes out in February, it probably won't be ready for all of us until later in the year. Um, and maybe might not even be that effective. So um, this could be the new normal. And, um, and I, I think some people will be probably in academia starting to work from home permanently, or at least on a, a, a you know, more than half-time basis kind of thing. Okay, next up, um, there was a great paper published in Cell Systems with the title, What Needs to Change in Academia to Increase the Number of Black Scientists and Engineers? This appeared uh, in their voices section and included responses from more than 10 black scientists, including Dr. Casey Overby Taylor, a bioinformatician from Johns Hopkins that we know. And I thought I would read Dr. Taylor's response. And she says, and I quote, more opportunities to develop a scientific identity are needed to increase the number of black scientists and engineers. 
developing a scientific identity as a predictor of who will continue on to graduate school in STEM. The first step in building a scientific identity is being aware of STEM communities you might aspire to join. I was fortunate to learn about and be exposed to research in bioinformatics early on during uh, undergrad. This, along with academic mentorship, enabled me to pursue a concentration in bioinformatics for my Bachelor of Science. But I often felt uncertain I belonged in STEM. This experience is common among black students who report finding it hard to position themselves and be seen by others as authentically scientific. For me, participating in summer research during high school and undergrad and the training experience in graduate school helped overcome such uncertainties. The early summer research provided the catalyst for awareness of STEM communities and the later training provided the collegiality and mentorship to help me see myself as part of a community of scholars. Organizing summer programs that help students build a scientific identity is not a new idea and many strong programs with high quality research experiences and mentorship exist. My hope is that pathways to such opportunities for black students in a variety of STEM areas will grow in number to foster and increase scientific aspirations uh, among black students. Uh, I thought this was a, a great piece and all of the scientists um, that, that wrote in this piece had really great recommendations, so please check it out. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was such a great piece and, and I'm excited to be participating in one of those summer programs. So Penn is, has a program and I have five students in my lab for the summer from underrepresented uh, groups in science. I'm really excited and I, it made me feel um, inspired reading this article. Um, the next one is a piece in Nature by Pratyusha Kulari. Uh, it's from July 7th, and it suggests that we shouldn't be asking whether AI is good or fair, but rather we should ask how it shifts power. She writes, and I quote, when the field of AI believes it is neutral, it both fails to notice biased data and build systems that sanctify the status quo and advance the interests of the powerful. What is needed is a field that exposes and critiques systems that concentrate power while co-creating new systems with impacted communities, AI by and for the people, end quote. Um, in other words, it's not enough for our AI to be fair and transparent. We have to consider how it's used and by whom. We'll have a link to this article as well in the show notes. Yeah, I really like that piece. And I, I really hadn't thought about the, the power issue. Uh, I think a lot about bias and fairness, but not power. So it's good, good, to, good to be aware of. Uh, I ran across an interesting New York Times piece from July 15th written by Shira Ovid. Uh, we often think that more data is better. Uh, we do live in a big data world and all aspire to have more data. Um, and there are plenty of examples in academia and industry of persons or entities that try to amass uh, as much data as possible. The author of this piece doesn't think this is always a good idea and calls for unilateral data disarmament, which I thought was um, really interesting because you don't often see uh, a call for less data. Um, the title of the piece is Just Collect Less Data, Period. And one of the issues she cites is power, which we just discussed. Um, and she discusses how companies amass data for the purpose of power and influence. 
She cites a draft privacy bill released by U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown that proposes companies only collect data when it is strictly necessary. As she states, and I quote, unrestricted harvesting of personal data has gone too far. And um, I, you know, I wonder, Marilyn, whether, you know, we're going to cross this bridge with clinical data, especially, you know, now that we're in the rush to share COVID-19 data nationally and internationally. And uh, there's a lot of pressure on us to, to do uh, data sharing um, for these healthcare emergencies. And, um, and you know, there, there are companies participating in these data sharing initiatives who um, have as a primary mission the um, collection of, of as much data as possible for powerful purposes. So I, I think this is going to be something we're going to increasingly talk about in the healthcare domain. Yeah, I agree. Definitely not something I tend to think about, but I think it, it will be in our on our radar from now on. All right, the next is that uh, there are four new RFAs out from the US NIH, so the National Institutes of Health, as part of the Harnessing Data Science for Health Discovery and Innovation in Africa. It's the DSI Africa program. They write, NIH is launching DSI Africa, an NIH common fund program to explore how advances in data science applied in the African context can spur new health discoveries and catalyze innovation. This program will leverage existing data and technologies to develop solutions to the continent's most pressing clinical and public health problems through a robust ecosystem of new partners from academic, government, and private sectors. I think this is a, a fabulous new initiative and uh, kind of opposite of the, the more data issue that we just talked about. I think this is something that's needed doing more with data and generating more data out of Africa. So often the data sets from Africa don't get used because they're small in comparison to data sets from Europe or from the United States. And so I, I was really excited to see these RFAs. I think this is gonna be a great, um, opportunity for, for new innovations out of those data from Africa. Yeah, I think the opportunities for data science in Africa are endless. It'll be interesting to see how this develops. Okay, next up, uh, there was a great piece that we saw in the Wall Street Journal highlighting uh, a black data scientist who attended Temple University here in Philadelphia with the goal of becoming a lawyer. She was not happy with how her career was unfolding and just by chance ran across the field of data science. She did an analytics fellowship and then landed a job at a data science firm in New York City. And I think uh, this is a really, really nice example of how anyone with an interest in quantitative thinking can get into data science. Um, and uh, there are multiple paths uh, to a data science career. And in this piece, um, her advice is, and I quote, be patient with yourself, she said, Switching careers isn't something that happens overnight. You'll get a lot of no's before you get a yes. So um, I think I thought this was an inspirational piece from somebody who switched directions, got into data science, uh, was persistent, made it happen, and is now thoroughly uh, uh, happy with um, her decision. Yeah, it was a great article. All right, the next one, um, we thought we would mention another podcast. This is an awesome podcast. It's from our friend and colleague, Dr. Janina Jeff. 
Janina did her PhD in human genetics at Vanderbilt while I was on the faculty there. I was actually on her thesis committee. I believe I was even the chair of her thesis committee. Um, now, Dr. Jeff is a senior bioinformatics scientist specialist at Illumina, and she is the host of this new podcast called In Those Genes, which uses genetics to decode the lost histories and futures of African descended Americans through the lens of Black culture. It is phenomenal. You will not be able to stop listening once you listen. Um, it is uh, available on Spotify, and I believe it is available on some other podcast um, apps as well. Um, it's just, it's an incredible perspective in learning about Black culture and the role of genetics. It's just, it's outstanding. Um, I also want to note that Dr. Jeff was just selected for the American Society of Human Genetics Advocacy Award for 2020 um, because of this work that she's been doing with the podcast. So kudos and congratulations to you, Janina. It's so well-deserved. This podcast is just phenomenal. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, definitely well worth the listen. Okay, um, our final uh, news piece of the day. Um, there was a, an important worldview piece um, that I saw that was published just today, uh, July 28th in Nature. And it was written by Dr. Namanje Bumpus, who chairs the pharmacology department at Johns, at Johns Hopkins. And the title of her piece is, and I quote, too many senior white academics still resist recognizing racism with the tagline, as a black woman who is chair of a university science department, people have questioned my, my right to exist at every stage. And she starts um, her piece with the following paragraph, which I thought I would read for you. Uh, and I quote, why did we let you in then? That was what a white colleague in a scientific society asked me when I declined to lead a new diversity initiative. I am the first black woman to chair a department at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the only one currently leading a department of pharmacology at any US medical school. All through my career, from grade school onwards, teachers, colleagues, and leaders have challenged my place in science. When my appointment as chair was announced, I received a racist backlash through Twitter, and email. She goes on to say that someone wrote the N-word on the announcement of an award she won and left it in her inbox. She also says that some colleagues blamed her for these racist incidents. She calls on the overrepresented people in science to look inward and wake up to this exclusionary culture. She calls for action, including, and I quote, seeking out those who are often overlooked or actively excluded, nominating black scientists, including students and postdocs, for awards and prominent speaking engagements. It means inviting black scientists to give departmental talks. It means creating institutional transition programs to help black postdocs and other emerging scientists from historically marginalized groups to move into well-resourced faculty positions. And she ends the piece um, by calling for activism and not slogans or defensiveness. Um, and I agree completely. I think activism is what we need for real change. Um, and I really like this piece and I thought it was very well written. And, um, you know, it's, it's shocking to read uh, how people are, are treated. And, um, 
anyway, I, I highly recommend this piece for everyone. Now on to our journal club discussion. Each episode, we will pick a recent paper for discussion. Today, we will discuss a commentary paper on what do medical students need to know about artificial intelligence by Liam McCoy et al. It was published in June of 2020 in Nature Digital Medicine. I will give a brief overview. This paper is organized into three sections. In the first section, they focus on what physicians need to understand about AI in a clinical context. As with any technology, they need to be able to use it, interpret it, and explain it. Then in the second section, they focus on what physicians need to understand about AI in the broader professional context. This section touched on the ethical and operational issues of using AI in a clinical setting, as well as issues such as bias and security. And then finally, the third section focuses on how medical students might learn what they need to know. They divide this into two pieces. First, there are the things all physicians need to know for everyday practice. They suggest this can be addressed with curricular components. And then second, there are the things they need to know to drive innovation. They suggest this can be addressed with extracurricular programs. They mention a University of Toronto program which offers a certificate in computing for medicine and an AI and medicine student interest group. The authors provide an, an informative table on what students need to know about AI. They list four curricular objectives and four extracurricular objectives. For each, they provide a delivery recommendation as well. For example, they list the promotion of student interest groups as an extracurricular activity with hackathons and datathons with computer science students as a delivery recommendation. So we will have a link to the article in the show notes. Um, Jason, what did you think about this paper? Yeah, I, I uh, well, I thought this paper raised more questions than it provided answers, but I think it's uh, a very important question. Um, AI is going to be everywhere uh, in the very near future, and it's something that every clinician is going to encounter uh, in clinical practice. And it, it, it kind of reminds me of the thought process that genetics, um, uh, has gone through in the last 10 years as genetics has permeated virtually every aspect of medicine and clinical care. Um, you know, we've realized that most clinicians are, uh, not trained uh, to know what to do with genetic testing results or to understand you know, what genetic tests to order, uh, are certainly not experts in genetics, but it is uh, in every, every practice now. Um, and so geneticists have gone through this exercise of thinking about, okay, how do we incorporate genetic education in, in the medical education curriculum, both through curricular components and extracurricular components? And I would say we, you know, largely have not done a very good job of doing that with genetics because it's hard because medical school curriculums are very rigid. Many of them are more or less set in stone. It takes many years to change a medical school curriculum. It, you know, there's, it's, it's a lot of work um, and they're very highly prescribed. Um, so, you know, we've been through the last 10 years trying to get genetics into the medical school curriculum. What makes us think that we're going to be able to get AI into the medical school curriculum? And to do it right, just like doing it right with genetics, you really need to integrate it from start to finish so that 
um, medical students um, in their first and second year curriculum are learning as they learn about concepts and, and ideas in medicine that they're also um, taught to think about, okay, um, here's a fact, here's how you make a decision using that fact. And how would a computer make that same decision? Is this something a computer would be good at? What, what would a computer need to make that medical decision? Um, and so, and then in the third and fourth year curriculum to, to you know, you can provide more extracurricular activities and, and, and specific courses on AI to give a little bit more in-depth knowledge that the students need. But to do it right, I think you need to integrate it into virtually every aspect of the curriculum across all four years so that when the students come out, they really have a deep understanding of not only what AI is, um, but you know how, how, how to actually use it in clinical practice and how to interpret it, how to explain it, like you said. Um, so I, I think this paper raises more questions than answers, and we have a lot of work to do to get AI into the medical curriculum. Yeah, I agree. And it reminded me of a, a paper that we reviewed in one of the first episodes of the podcast about the utility of, um, I guess it wasn't AI specifically, it was deep learning. But in the similar context with respect to, um, to clinical care and the utility in the clinic, similarly, I feel like if we don't embed this into medical education, you know, Physicians are going to have a really hard time making decisions about when they can use the AI models and the predictions that come out of AI models and when they can't rely on them. I think they need to understand kind of what the strengths and limitations of AI methods for medicine are. I think they need to understand and be able to look through some of these predictions. And, you know, the whole goal of, of using AI in medicine, it's not to replace doctors. We don't want computers to become the doctors. We want computers to sift through the vast array of information and put only the most critical content in front of a physician so that they can make decisions efficiently and spend more time interacting with the patient rather than skimming through electronic health record tabs. But they have to then understand, you know, if there is some sort of error rate on the prediction or some sort of, you know, area under the curve or predictive ability or some metric that tells you the utility of that AI implementation that was done, they, they need to understand, oh, hold on, I need to look more carefully or, oh, this is a, you know, really predictive, great model. So I agree with you. I think they need to, they need to have a deeper understanding what AI, kind of how it works, where it's powerful, where, it, where it's limited. Uh, I don't, I don't like the idea that they might just blindly trust these vendor-developed AI systems and just use them without really understanding them. Yeah, I remember serving on an AI and medicine panel uh, within the last two or three years, and um, the uh, moderator asked me what what I thought was the biggest challenge um, in AI and medicine, and I remember saying that. Um, you know, the, the interpretation um, of the AI and the trust of the AI was, was really our biggest challenge, that if, if you're going to employ AI to make clinical decisions, then you need to be able to trust it, just as you trust your own colleagues when you ask them for advice uh, uh, when you're making a decision. Um, and, you know, you need to 
you need to have that understanding of where that answer comes from. Do you, do you trust it? And what does it, what does it mean? What is it telling you? And, and um, a clinician on the panel said, Oh, I don't care. I just want the answer. And I was really floored by that. I just thought, Oh my God, you know, that, uh, I mean, on one hand I can understand busy clinician, just give me the, give me the bits and pieces of information I need to, to do my job. I, I totally get that. And, Clinicians are overwhelmed with their current workflows, um, but um, you know you're making when you're making life and death decisions. You want to be able to trust and understand the information that's being fed to you by a computer. Uh, and computers do make mistakes, and as we know and we've talked about on the podcast, computers are biased. They're biased by the data. They're biased by the modeling approaches that they use. There are all kinds of problems with AI that need to be addressed. So I think I think this is kind of where you know this article is is getting at is that if clinicians are going to be using AI they need to be asking those kinds of questions they need to feel comfortable with it and to feel comfortable with it you have to understand it and understand its strengths and limitations just as you understand the strengths and limitations of your colleagues when you ask them for clinical advice. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And that's actually shocking to hear that anecdote from the panel you were on, it's a bit frightening. I just about fell out of my chair. I did not expect that answer. I thought for sure clinicians would be all about transparency and trust and interpretability and, you know, that that would be very important to them. But uh, but this particular one just wanted the answer. Oh. Well, this is a great article. I, I think you're right. It brings up more questions and answers, but I would encourage folks to take a look at it and, and think some about it, especially if you're involved in medical school curriculum at your institution. Um, I am involved in teaching genetics to our first year medical students. And I do know your earlier point about, you know, it they have to learn a lot and it's taken a long time to start to get genetics embedded in their curriculum. I know that AI is going to be another challenge but it's important. And as medicine moves into the future, we can't ignore AI. It has to become part of the, their curriculum. It's just a matter of how we're gonna do that efficiently so that they understand it. Well, I'm ready. I'm ready to do it. Um, it's just, you know, are the curriculum committees of medical schools ready to do it? That's the key question. Yeah, let's get them there. All right, well, thank you for that discussion. Uh, as I mentioned, the article will be linked in the show notes. So please take a look. My name is Chris Longhurst. I am the Chief Information Officer at UC San Diego Health, and you are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast with Jason and Mary Lynn. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is tips for science communication on Twitter to be presented by Jason. Thanks, Marilyn. Um, so I um, prepared a list of 20 plus tips for using Twitter to communicate your science and promote your career. And I presented this uh, last week to my department um, and went really well. We had a good attendance of about, I think there were probably about 50 people uh, there and got good feedback. And um, so what I did was um, I, I thought it might be useful for others. So I recorded uh, a YouTube video and we'll include a link to the YouTube video on my 20 tips um, here in the show notes. 
And what I thought I would do today is just um, go through a few of the tips. I'm not going to go through all 20, and I'm not going to go on at length about each of them. I, if you're interested in the details, please watch the 30-minute video on YouTube. Um, but I thought I'd go through a, a few of them just to, to give our listeners um, who might not watch the YouTube video some of the, some of the highlights. And let me start by saying that I was a relatively early adopter of Twitter Twitter in 2008. Twitter started um, in 2006. I remember hearing about it in 2007. A colleague mentioned it to me, and at the time they described it as um, kind of a micro-blogging site where in very few characters, 140 characters or less, you would just say what you were doing. And the general idea at the time, anyway, was that you know, you would just pop on to Twitter and say, hey, I'm at the supermarket, or hey, I'm at the library, or I guess who I just ran into. It would be that kind of just, a, you know, um, short little bits and pieces of what you were doing or what you were interested in that particular moment of the day. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, well, that sounds interesting, but I'm not sure I really want to, you know, share with the world what I'm doing every second of every day. So... Um, and then about a year later, I got interested in Twitter because I started hearing more about it. And I started thinking about how it could be used to promote my research and promote my career. And so I signed up and started using it. And I probably didn't use it very much in the first year or two. But I would say for the last 10 years, I've been pretty much a, a daily active user of Twitter. And over that time, I've accumulated over 27,000 followers. And I've tweeted more than 40,000 times. So I think that gives you a sense of you know, my level of engagement and activity on Twitter for the last 10 years. And I think it can be a very, very effective medium for promoting your science, but it does take some work. And for it to be an effective medium, um, you have to build up a follower base because you need people who are actually going to see your content and react to it in some way. Um, but um, it takes time, it takes effort to build up um, a loyal following so that you can promote your work through Twitter. So here are a couple of my tips. I think I've listed 10 here, but there are 20 on the YouTube video. So my first tip is provide interesting content. Uh, give, you know, give people a reason to follow your Twitter account. Um, and, um, you know, it's a little bit of an art. Um, what I do is I pick things that are interesting to me and and fortunately, that seems to be interesting to a lot of other people. Um, so that's certainly one approach. I think it's hard to second guess what other people might be interested in. But generally, pick things that you're interested in. Um, number two, include images. I think images help tweets get noticed and helps get people interested in a tweet so they engage with it in some way. Uh, number three, include hashtags. Hashtags are the keywords that we use on Twitter to kind of the uh, the metadata to um, that people can use to search for tweets or to organize tweets that they're interested in. Um, so, you know, there's an informatics hashtag, for example, or a bioinformatics hashtag that might direct people to tweets in those, uh, in those areas. Uh, the time of day when you tweet can be important. Uh, studies have shown that tweeting in the morning, um, tweets in the morning tend to get noticed more than tweets in the afternoon or evening. So I try to tweet between about 8, 8 a.m. in the morning and 12 p.m. So most of my tweets are in the morning. I think it's important to tweet every day. If you want to build up a, lo a loyal follower base, you want to be pushing out good content on a daily basis so that people get used to seeing your name and, and want to follow you on a daily basis. Um, 
Now, it can be hard to tweet in the mornings and tweet every day when you have a busy job, of, you know, a lot of meetings, you're on Zoom all day long. Um, and so what I do is I schedule tweets ahead of time. So about half or more of the tweets you see from me um, are queued up ahead of time on the weekends or in the early mornings or late evenings when I have time to do social media or t time to read um, about interesting things or read papers. Um, and that's, that's when I, and then I queue up the tweets to go out in the mornings every day uh, when they're most likely to get noticed. Um, like I said, building, building up a follower base is important so people actually see your content. So one way to do that is to follow people on Twitter and there's a certain probability that they'll follow you back. And so that's one way to build up a follower base. And you, know, you can search through and find interesting people with similar interests or other areas that you're interested in. And, and follow them and some of them will follow you back. Um, you wanna put a lot of content out, but I'm careful not to self promote too much. You don't want people to think you're only concerned about yourself. Um, you want to push out interesting content about other people and other things. Um, if it's all about you, people might lose interest or, or see you as a little bit too much self-centered. And my last um, tip for today, there are many more uh, on the YouTube video, but my, my last tip for today is to keep it light and fun and try to avoid controversy. Uh, some people build up a, a big follower base by being controversial, being provocative, insulting people, uh, insulting other scientists, that happens all the time, insulting their work. Um, and uh, I just think that kind of negativity is not good in science. I think um, constructive criticism and mentoring is a much better approach. So my general philosophy is keep it light, keep it fun, avoid controversy. And I think um, you'll build up a, a bigger, more robust, friendlier following uh, that way. So I'll stop there. Um, that's just a quick list. And again, the, the link to the YouTube videos here in the show notes. Jason, that was such a great list. Uh, and I've learned a lot watching you on Twitter. So I, I was just looking up just uh, for a frame of reference in case anybody isn't really on Twitter. So I've been on since 2011. So a few years after you, I have 2,300 followers and I've tweeted 1,100 times. So very <laughs> limited user in comparison to you. Um, I think uh, two of the reasons why I use it limited or sparingly, I should say. Um, one is the, the tweeting every day. I have a hard time finding the time. I like that idea of scheduling tweets. It's not something I've really ever done. It's something I really should look into because then maybe it wouldn't feel so daunting to tweet daily if I you know, spent some time on Saturday morning scheduling the tweets for the first couple days and then you know, Wednesday morning schedule tweets for a few days. Um, but the other is that last point, the keeping it light and fun. I agree with that but I have found so many trolls on Twitter. I'm curious, what do you do when you get attacked? Cause I, so I don't like confrontation in real life and I certainly don't like it on the internet. I feel like sometimes people, because they're behind a screen and it's not their real name, they're at whatever goofy name they came up with. It gives them the opportunity to be a real jerk and say terrible things. And in fact, I just saw this um, just in the last two months, one of the people that I follow who I think is a phenomenal mentor for other scientists, especially junior scientists, got 
totally ripped apart. This person posts the most inspirational things all the time. And she said one thing that was just slightly not as well said as other things that she says. I'm not going to go too much in depth, but she got attacked by hundreds of people. And so she took a break for a while. And when I see things like that, I'm like, oh gosh, like I just, I don't know. I don't want to get totally attacked. So I'm just curious when that happens to you, do you engage? Do you just ignore? How do you deal with the trolls? So first of all, I forgot to mention, I'm at more JH on Twitter and Marilyn, your Twitter handle is? At Marilyn Ritchie. At Marilyn Ritchie. Okay. Which is why I can't be a troll. You'll know it's me. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm uh, at more JH and Marilyn is at Marilyn Ritchie. And if you follow us on Twitter, we'll do our best, very best to see that and follow you back. And if we don't be sure and leave us a comment and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, make it right. Um, we definitely want to follow our listeners. So please, please do follow us and we'll follow you back. We'd love to see your tweets. Um, so before I answer your question, Marilyn, let me just say that on the YouTube video, I go through the advantages of using Twitter, the good things about it. And then I also go through the risks. And one of the risks is opening yourself up to these kinds of attacks from the trolls and others that, you know, the haters that are out there, and there are plenty of them in academia, believe it or not. And, um, you know, when I was an early Twitter user, and I would say earlier in my career, I would engage more often with people who challenged me in some way or exhibited bad behavior. And, And what I learned was that I really didn't feel good after having an exchange with somebody like that. And, and, and many of these people were not just, you know, uh, random trolls from the Twitter sphere. These were academics, right? These are sci- other scientists at prestigious institutions that were uh, saying rude things and behaving badly. And and so what I learned over time is that I, it just didn't make me feel good. It stressed me out. Um, and so what I learned over time is just to ignore them. And yeah, you, every once in a while, you're going to get criticized every once in a while. But But the thing is, the thing to remember is Twitter's a fleeting moment. You know, and yes, a tweet goes out to the whole world, but not everybody notices the tweet. So if, if, if somebody says something awful to you, something inappropriate to you, the best thing to do is just let it go. Because as soon as you engage them, as soon as you answer back, you're creating more of a record. You're creating more opportunities for people to notice the negativity it's better to just let it go and let it disappear into the ether, which it usually does. And, um, and yeah, some, some people might notice it. Some people that know you might notice it, but you know what? 10 seconds later, they're going to be onto something else and they're going to forget about it. So um, that's my advice is just ignore the trolls, let it go. Um, one of my worst uh, flaming events happened um, about a year or two ago. Um, I tweeted out, um, it was, it was, it was perfectly innocuous. It was the surgeon, the U S surgeon general's recommendations about vaping and that vaping can be harmful to your health. Um, this was the surgeon, the U S surgeon general's position. And all I did was tweet the statement from the surgeon general with the link to the surgeon general's website. And I got such an extreme response from the pro vaping community. It was unbelievable. I have never been attacked so viciously as by the vapors. 
Um, and I've tweeted, uh, I tweet a lot of, you know, from time to time, anti-tobacco, you know, related to cancer and heart disease and other things, um, anti-smoking. And I tweeted, and I have never gotten flamed as bad as I did for this anti-vaping thing. So, um, but I let it go. And what I did was I um, blocked the people that were flaming me. That's something you can do on Twitter. You can block people so you don't see their tweets. And it was funny because I started blocking these people. And as I blocked them, other people would say, hey, why are you blocking so-and-so? And they, it, so it was a whole network of people that sort of rallied around each other to, you know, attack anybody that was being anti-vaping. It was really interesting. So there are, there are risks to using Twitter. And I go through that in the YouTube video. So you should definitely listen to the risks and make sure you understand what the risks are. There's risk of hack, getting hacked. There's risks of, you know, getting attacked, um, all kinds of things. So uh, good, good to be aware of the risks uh, when you use something like this. All right. Um, I think we'll move on um, and uh, be sure if you're interested and want to build up a Twitter following, um, be sure and watch the YouTube video. It is now time to wrap up the discussion for the day. Marilyn, do you have any closing remarks? Well, this was a really fun episode. So exciting to, to have these conversations with you. So thanks for another great conversation. Um, I think the, the main thing that, that's really on my mind is how we're gonna watch the transition of um, the informatics research, the medical education around informatics research, and kind of how these next couple years are going to go in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The, um, the environment that we're working in is, it's just different, and it's going to be different for quite some time. It's certainly affecting, you know, many of us are working from home, and as we talked about, you know, Google's going to be home till next summer, it's hard to know how long we're gonna be home, which is why I invested in a whiteboard and a standing desk for my laptop so that I can work effectively here. Um, in that same context, how is that gonna change how we're, we're mentoring our students, how our leaders are being mentored, back to the conversation that we had with Kevin earlier. You know, These leaders need to be mentored and so much of our traditional mentoring has happened in person, in conference rooms, in interactive sessions, and now that we're kind of living virtually and doing so much of this on Zoom, back to this conversation we had a few episodes ago, like we need the metaverse and we need it now, not just Zoom staring at the screen. We need some sort of interactive way for teaching our courses, for doing our research. Um, I know I mentioned on the last episode and it's something very still fresh in my mind is how to have that influx of creativity and innovation. I wanna have my walk for coffee with my lab. I want to have a whiteboard session with my colleagues. And that's hard. That's part of why I bought a whiteboard. I'm going to try to see if I can create that at home. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm anxious to see how this next year goes. And I, I don't mean anxious in a, a, a negative way. I mean, I, I think that we are all creative. And I think if we can kind of think out of the box and push ourselves a little bit, I think we will change the way that we work over the next year. And, and I'm optimistic that we're gonna change it for the better, but it, it, the next 12 months, we could have some growing pains. Jason, how about you? 
Yeah, I agree with you. It's a time of transition, uh, big, big transitions in science as we adapt to this new reality. And, and I, think, uh, I think many of us will probably continue working from home indefinitely. I think it's going to be a, a new model. Um, I don't think I'm going to be going into the office every day, maybe never again. Um, and there are positives and negatives to that, as, as you mentioned, and that's something we're going to have to adapt to. But I think uh, the good news for us as informaticians, as data scientists, is that the kind of work we do is really, um, really conducive to working from home if that's what you choose to do and if you have a good work from home environment. So um, I think informaticians and data scientists are, are going to be among those who are probably most likely to be able to work from home and make it and, and make it productive and, and meaningful. So um, and I definitely look forward to the to the day when we um, uh, have a metaverse, a real metaverse where we can feel like we're with each other and can really sense each other like we do in, in our physical presence. And um, I actually got out my virtual reality um, this past weekend and was playing with it and, um, it's coming along and, um, imagining, you know, what the metaverse might be like. Um, I have an HTC Vive, um, virtual reality set up at home. Um, and we use it at work as well. Uh, or at least we used to use it at work. I'm not sure anybody wants to put on, share a headset with anybody <laughs> else nope. at the moment, but, uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I agree with you, Marilyn. And, um, I'd like to point out that you know, again, that this is our 10th episode. And um, I, you know, Marilyn, we did it. We got 10 episodes done in less than a year. Um, so we set out a goal uh, fall of last year to, to do about one episode a month. And we have hit that target. And I'm very proud of that. And I'm very proud of the content that we've been able to put together for our listeners and um, looking forward to Doing the next 10 episodes, uh, we certainly, I think, if anything, our momentum is increasing as we do each episode. And um, and I also want to thank Kevin Johnson for coming on the podcast. Um, Kevin is uh, an absolute giant in the biomedical informatics community, and uh, we've all learned so much from him. And um, he's he's a role model for all of us. And thank you, Kevin, for, for coming on and spending some time with us. And uh, Hopefully, we uh, will also get the chance to, to be on your awesome podcast. And everybody should listen to Kevin's podcast. He, uh, he and his team do a, a fantastic job. All right. I think uh, that's it for today. That's a wrap. And it is officially Miller time here in Philadelphia. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you'll be able to find some time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia.